Uh, Open in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 22. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's cool. There's one in the pew in front of you, or or flip open your your phone, turn on the app, whatever whatever you need to do uh, to find Romans chapter uh, 15 verses, uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 22, and we'll be reading all of this at, uh, at some point here as we get moving. Uh, our, our word for the day uh, is sanctification. What we've been doing is talking about what this word saved means. We use it all the time, especially if you're, if you're not, a, not a Christian here today, um, maybe you even heard this used. Christians use this all the time. I've been saved. We sing it in our songs. We, we, we just kind of throw it out as though we all know what that means. And, and, and what I've come to discover is that a lot of times Christians don't have any idea how big and massive the word saved is. It's a huge word. And we've talked about all of these different areas and, and, and attributes and things that God has done in order to make salvation possible for us. Our word today is sanctification. And sanctification is a, is a kind of a fancy word for being holy or being made holy. So if you are in Jesus and you've received the, the propitiation of Jesus' death, the imputation of his righteousness, the justification is standing right before God, reconciliation and a right relationship with God, the grace of God, um, and I can't see the other one. Oh, freedom. The freedom that Paul talked about last week that comes from life in the spirit. You are now walking in a newness of life. And if you don't have any idea about what I just said, We've got it all backlogged on the website, and you can listen to each one of those sermons where we talk about these words. Sanctification has two pieces. The first piece is moral purity. Moral purity. And the second piece is being set apart for something good, something that is, is for God and God alone. And to illustrate that point, I want to introduce you to Conan. This is a, a board game that I kickstarted two years ago. Uh, they said it would be like six months, and it was two years, but we finally got it. There are two boxes of these awesome things, because I am officially ten. It came with all these awesome little things. Look at these monsters, huh? And, and, and all these little guys, and these Conans with the swords. Oh, like, you just, it's going to be fun. And it is fun. Um, and so I was pulling these things out like a kid on Christmas. Like, like Laura, look at this little monster. He's going to fight this little guy. I'm not... Um, selling myself well, but that's what I was doing. And so I'm setting them all up, and Emery, uh, our six-year-old, is like, her eyes got big, and she was like, ooh, things. And I slapped her hand, and I said, Daddy's toys. (laughs) Daddy's toys. Emery's toys? Daddy's toys. And so I set up the board, because this is what it's supposed to look like when you play the game. Doesn't that look awesome? If I get some phone calls because you want to play this, it's okay. It's okay. And I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to play. And Emery is standing somewhere over here, and then over here, and then over here, trying to reach. But I keep slapping her hand because daddy's toys. Daddy's toys. But daddy is not strong-willed when it comes to cute little six-year-old girl faces. So... Within a week, easily, this became also Emery Toys. Um, and this is Emery playing with the game. And I said to Emery, listen, um, you can play with it, but there's these, these strict rules. Like, you can't, they have to stay on it. And I'm laying down these strict rules. Why? Because they are holy to me. They are set apart. They are daddy's toys. And so... Uh, 
but this is just funny because this is what we, I, I said, okay, let's play the game. And she said, okay, and she starts lining them up because guess what they're playing? House. It's like, do you see these monsters, these guys with the rad swords? What are they doing? They're playing house. I just. And another girl on the way. So we'll be playing lots of house with Conan. So it, it, was, a, it was a little disheartening, but I got over it because her face is cute. So, but that's the idea, right? There is something that has been set apart for a specific purpose. Obviously, this is a ridiculous example. We have, in a much more powerful and important way, been set apart as God's toys, as God's possession, as God's thing. You have been called, you have been saved, so that you could be a sanctified and holy people set apart for God's own will and purpose. We so often forget this. Let's look at our text here this morning. In Romans chapter 6, verse 15, I want to look at this first verse. I'll throw the slide up here and then I'll explain it. He says this in verse 15, What then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? So Paul is making this argument throughout this letter in Romans, and, and he's sort of laying out what salvation looks like, all of these things that God has done. And he gets to a place where he stops, and he does this in verse 1, like Paul talked about last week, and he does this again in verse 15, right here, where he says, okay, wait, I can hear the wheels spinning in your mind, and you're saying to yourself the rhetorical, and he asks them the rhetorical question, shall we sin then? Because we're not under law. God's given his grace freely. Uh, what, uh, as we've talked about, what did y'all do to earn this? Nothing, right? So God's grace has come upon us apart from law, apart from works, and, and he's done this for us. And so now, I mean, what's sin? We could sin, right? I want you to see the connection here in ver- from back in to, to verse 1 that Paul talked about last week. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin? So that grace may increase. The continual life of sin. Paul says, of course not. You have died to that way of life. And now you're living a new kind of life. Perhaps you've had this experience. If you've been married for a long time, it's hard to conceive of life before marriage. If you've had kids for years and years. I mean, once the kid comes, man, you change. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. You start crying at Wolverine trailers. Like, it's weird. It gets life. I can't imagine life pre-Emory. Like, I couldn't live as though I was there. Perhaps it's when you got that phone call that said, your mom died, or your dad died, or even your child died. Maybe it's the phone call that you got said, you've got cancer. Whatever it is, you get this moment in your life where everything that happened beforehand, uh, it's, it's now different going forward. You're a different person. Paul says that has happened to you in Jesus. So you can no longer continue in a life of sin. But I hear your thoughts. Right? I, 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 can, I, can, I can conceive of where you would be. Because the question then becomes, well, okay, fine, Paul. I can't continue in sin, but can I commit a sin? Right? That's a difference. It's subtle, but it is a difference. So you ask the question in verse 1, Paul, can I get a job where every single day I'm required to lie? Just lie and lie and lie and lie and lie. And Paul says, no, being a politician, right out. Can't do it. (laughs) See what I did there? Huh? Huh? And you say, okay, Paul, okay, fine. I get that. I can't live in sin. I can't continue to do that. But, like, what about one, you know? 
What about a job where I don't lie every single day, but you know, the company really needs the sale. I really need the commission. I just like kind of twist the truth just a little, just enough to get that. Is that okay? Is that okay? Paul's asking that question because I think that's wonderful because we as Christians do this all the time. We as Christians will say, okay, yes, I know I can't continue in sin. I know that if I'm going to be a Christian, I gotta kind of do some of the things that, that, that Jesus wants me to do. But maybe just this once, you know? It's just one little, little thing I'm holding on to, one little vice, one little grudge, one little angry word, one little, just one little thing that I can't quite let go of, you know? And, and uh, even though I know we just sang, I surrender all, this one thing, I'm just gonna kind of hold on to this one for a little bit because it's just a sin, right? Not... Not, not life of sin, just a sin. And Paul answers that question. Can this be? No, may it never be. It cannot happen. There's a strong negation here. You cannot live a life of sin, verses 1 through 14, and you can't live in just one or two or three sins and just kind of once in a while sprinkle them in there. May it never be. Why? Well, this is verses 16 through 23. Now, 16 through 23, as you're looking at your Bibles, verses 16 through um, 19 function as one section, and 20 through 22 is a summary of that section. And I want you to notice that at the end of both of those, verse 19 and verse 22, end with this. Actually, verse 20. Yeah, verse 22. Uh, Sanctification. What governs all of this is this word. You are called to be a holy people. You are called to righteousness. You are called to sanctification. Let's look at verses 16 through 19. I'll read these and follow along, please, in your Bibles. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So, Pick a, pick a lane. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were, you were committed. And having been set free, that freedom piece from last week, set free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once, that's the past life, once presented your body, your members, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which does what? Leads to more lawlessness. So now present yourselves looking forward as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. One of the things that I love about the Bible is its, its pickleaneness. Like, it's, 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 it's not equivocating. There's no middle ground. Paul doesn't say, well, you can do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Just kind of mix it up kind of as you will. It's sort of a, uh, the, the, the subway version of religion where you got a little of this, a little of that, and throw it all together as you want it. Paul says, no, you are a person who is made up of passions and desires. You have a will, and you are going to direct that along one of two paths. And you need to choose today. Which path you will direct it upon? Will it be driven by your desires? Now, sometimes people desire to be good. Isn't that true? Sometimes I want to do what's right. And sometimes I don't. And what do people, most people, live their lives like? Well, sometimes I'll do something nice for somebody. Because why? It makes me feel good. 
Again, see, the root of that is still your passions, still your own desires. And sometimes I want to do what's wrong, and I'll just sort of do what's wrong. I'll do what suits me. And then there are those who will, from the heart, be obedient to the teachings that we have received from Jesus Christ. And you need to pick which one you are. And most people will default, as we've talked about, to this path of the will. And Paul says, listen, there's only two of these paths. Think of this in terms of, like, money management. You get a paycheck, and a wise steward of God's provision that he has offered to you to supply your needs is to take those bills, pay off the bills, put things in, you know, put things in an account and, and save up for the lean times tied to the church, and et cetera, et cetera, to take that money and do something wise with it. Or you can go to Best Buy like Eric Dush and blow it all. <laughs> Boom. Or you can go with me up to Grand Rapids to the bookstore and we'll go nuts, right? But we both have wonderful wives who shake their head fiercely, no, right? That's, that's, you have to choose, and we see most people don't do that. Most people don't choose. And by not choosing, you, you follow your passions by default. Uh, we see this in the story of Cain. You might remember the story of Cain and Abel, all the way back to the beginning, back to Genesis chapter, chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, this is the first example of, of sin really taking root in somebody's life. Abel and Cain both sacrifice something to God. Abel sacrifices the best. Cain sacrifices the not so best. And so God looks upon Abel with favoritism. He says, he, he, he comes, we don't know exactly what it looks like, but he smiles upon the sacrifice that Abel gives. And Cain looks at Abel and he is jealous, that's fine too, angry. He is upset. Now what does this lead him to do? Does it lead him to say, well, you know, maybe I should have offered the best to God. No, that would make too much sense. We're talking about people here, right? Instead, he gets angry at his brother for his own unrighteousness. Like, it was my mistake, but I'm ticked at you because things are going well for you. I, I know no one's ever done anything like that. And the question that we might say, ask is, is it okay for Cain to have that sin? That one little, like, I'm angry at this person. Whether they deserve it or don't deserve it, I, I, am, I am angry at that person. Is it okay? The scripture says no. Even that one, just one little, just one, one time sin, no. Why? Is it because God won't forgive you? No? Good. You've been paying attention. Awesome, right? Is it because God's going to stop loving you? No. No. Is it because God's going to just kick you to the curb and say, I'm, I'm finished with you, you're done? No, no. Is it because God's going to undo all of these things that we've talked about? The massive weight of the righteous love of God. Is God going to undo all of this? No. Is it because you're going to disappoint him? Not even that. The reason why is because it grows. Because the anger that Cain lets, just that one sin, becomes jealousy. And jealousy becomes bitterness. And bitterness becomes hate. And hate becomes murder. Because I'll tell you this truth about sin. One sin is never enough. Never be enough. You think to yourself, because we lie to ourselves, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm really great at lying to myself. I, I don't, I'm sure none of you are like this at all. But I'll say to myself, just one more taco. 
just one more donut, just one more cup of coffee, and then I've got a stomachache and the jitters all night long, right? We know that one sin is not enough. One sin will not satisfy you. One sin will always become two, three, four. And now we're back to verse one of chapter six. We're in a life of sin. As soon as you say to yourself, just this once, you have lost the battle. It's over. And so you have to fight against that. This isn't because, it's not that our one sin threatens God or God's grace. It's because it threatens you. This isn't about the judgment of God. This is about the love of God and God pleading with you as his people to say, be holy because as soon as you open the door, sin comes rushing through. In fact, this is what God says to Cain. Before the murder even happens, as soon as the event happens, God notices, like God notices, right? God notices Cain's downcast face and his anger and he says, Cain, why are you angry? If you do what's right, you'll be accepted. If you don't do what's right, then what? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. There's a little bit of a mixing of metaphors there, but if you think of sin as a beast, like one of the Conan monsters, that is waiting at your door, and as soon as you open it just a crack, you can't handle the beast, right? It's going to burst through and it will tear your face off. That's what sin does. It's waiting for you to just open the door. And Cain opens the door and it comes tearing through. Verse 19. Romans 6. I hope you didn't close your Bibles. Verse 19. What does he say? In about midway through that verse, he says that lawlessness leads to What? More lawlessness. Once is never enough. Instead, we are called to look and look back at verse 17. What's he say there? Thanks be to God. Rather than looking in the past, rather than regretting, rather than thinking, well, maybe I can take a lot of sin or a little bit of sin or some sin, we should give thanks to God in verse 17 because though we were once enslaved to sin, now we have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teachings that God has given us. So we have transformed into the kind of people who would say, does this, is this what I want? And we would begin to ask the questions, is this what God wants? And, and let me even take it one step further because that still might seem a little bit. How do you receive all of this? How do you receive all this? By grace through faith, right? This was not a trick question. I know it seemed like it. It wasn't a trick question. By grace through faith, it is a gift. All of the grace of God has come to us via a gift. And we often don't think of our choices as a gift. We hear obedient and we think, ugh, yuck, I don't want to be obedient. I don't, commandment, all these things seem harsh to us. Everything that God has given is a gift. God has created this world, and when he got finished with all of it, those of you who are Bible school teachers, he got done with it, and what did he call it? No. Very good. There's the Bible teacher, right? Very good. It was good, 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 all done very good. Everything that God has given is a gift. Sex is a gift. Food is a gift. Marriage is a gift. Friendship is a gift. Relaxation 
Kicking back is a gift. Work is a gift. Learning is a gift. Church is a gift. And yet how many times do we take the gift, how many times have you seen the gift twisted, perverted, and made evil? It's all a gift given to you by God. And God says, take this and enjoy it. Run with it. What did you think Adam and, he wanted Adam and Eve to do? They were running naked through the garden, right? That's what they were doing. They were playing tag. They're having fun. Like they, life was amazing and good and innocent. It was like kids running out there screaming. And we often are the, the, the Stop running in church, right? And God wasn't doing that. He was saying, run free, enjoy. But what happens? We take all the gift and we go where we want with it, which ends up perverting the gift. And God says, I want to give you the gift. I want you to run with the gift. I want you to enjoy the gift. But because I know you guys are going to twist it and take it sideways, obey me, follow me. Let me put up some guideposts so you guys don't ruin everything. Unchecked, everything that I mentioned will ruin your life. It'll kill you. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And this is what sanctification looks like. Remember Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, I want you to have the same attitude as that which was in Christ Jesus. I want you to consider other people better than yourselves, greater than yourselves. How cool would a place be if everyone said, you matter more than me? Everywhere outside of these walls, every single person, every single thing is going to tell you, every single commercial, every single politician, everybody's going to say, you are the most important person in the world. This is the place where we all say, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not. Consider other people better yourself. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, did not consider himself equal with God, even though he was. And what did he do? He took on human flesh, took on the nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and became obedient to what? Death. He followed God's will to such an extent that he dies a brutal and terrible death on the cross. And then what does God do? Those of you who remember from Ephesians 2. He raises him up and gives him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every tongue would confess and every knee would bow. And this is, a, is, is an early Christian hymn that everybody's saying not just because it's true of Jesus but because it's true of you. You also have been lifted up. You have been brought up out of this present darkness and God has changed your view, your way of understanding things. Ephesians chapter um, Two really gets at this well. It says that he made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions, for by grace we've been saved. And God then what? Raised us up in salvation and all the stuff that we've been talking about. God raises us, he lifts, lifts us up out of this present darkness and he seats us with himself in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that the coming ages he might show to us the incomparable riches of his grace. That's what God sees and wants for you. And so he lifts you up. We might put this metaphorically, spiritually, our minds. We, we, we're transformed. Think of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where we're transformed in our thinking so that now we view no one through a worldly perception or through human eyes, but rather we view everyone as we would see Christ. Valuable, lovable, redeemable. We are called then to be holy, 
to be sanctified, to be changed. So instead of presenting ourselves to this sinful life, to even just that one little one-time sin, we are called to live as slaves of righteousness, which does what? In verse 19, the last line there. Slaves of righteousness that leads to our being sanctified, holy, made pure, spotless before God. And this all comes from the heart. I, I, I like that word, and I, I brought attention to it, and I'll keep on doing it just because our, our, it, it's different in our parlance. When we say heart, we think of emotions. When the Bible says heart, it says will. It isn't a cold will, though. It's a passionate will. It's a now instead of following my own way, I desperately hunger. My heart runs after God. My heart runs after his teaching. My heart runs after his, my, his will. My heart runs after his purposes because I know in Christ there are more riches and glory and life and brothers and sisters and houses and, and everything else that I could ever want. In Christ there is more. And so I chase it down. That's my heart. Is that your heart here today? Do some real search. Is that your heart? In verses 20 through 22, or 23, he summarizes again what he's said up to this point. And he says, he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Right? If you're enslaved to sin, you don't, you're, not, there's no bound, you're not bound to righteousness. You do whatever, do whatever you want, do whatever your will is. I'm sorry, you, are like, you guys are like directly in my path when I keep on making this... <laughs> You guys are good people. It just happens to be right and left. That's all. What was I saying? Right, okay, good. Verse 20. Uh, you were free in regards to righteousness. You didn't have to worry about righteousness and all, and all. But what was the fruit you were getting from those things? From the things of which you are now ashamed. What fruit was there in following your own path and doing your own thing? The end of those things is death. But now... Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And the end of sanctification, the end of all of this is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The end of all of this is eternal, eternal life. And so um, he says there, this kind of great concluding verse in 23. You might have memorized it when you were kids or if you ever went to VBS or something like that. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And those are really good, really good words. So again, he, he kind of revisits what we had talked about earlier. Nope. Hmm. My bad. I didn't put it in there. He revisits what we talked about earlier in terms of asking the rhetorical question, can I sin singular, and he says, no, you can never sin singular. Why? Not because of law or works, not because of losing God's grace or something like that, but because you are being sanctified. You are a holy people who have now presented yourself to God. And this kind of gets at it, I think. We have been saved from the consequences of our sin, 
the consequences of destruction, the consequences of death. God has come and he is going to bring his wrath upon the world. He's already revealed it in many ways, but there will be a final judgment, a final reckoning where the whole world will be held accountable to God. And so we have been saved from those things through these acts, through the death of Jesus, which takes the wrath of God, the giving of his righteousness to ourselves, the standing justified before God, even though I don't deserve it, so God doesn't account my sins against me, but rather he gave them to Jesus. And not only did he justify me, but he brought me close in a right relationship with him. And all of this is grace. All of this is gift. And then he gave us something more. The, sin, the salvation, this is my problem with the way that we can view salvation sometimes, is we just think of these things rather than understanding that these things are plugged into it as well. Our view of salvation is so small, we think it's just about me going to heaven. No, it's about how God has transformed all of reality, how he is reshaping everything, including you, so that you would have purpose, meaning, power, life, and holiness. We talked about freedom last week. Um, You can jump on the website and listen to that sermon that Paul gave. This week we're talking about sanctification. You have been picked up. And this is really cool. If you've ever felt, uh, Cheryl and I were talking about um, band. uh, Because that back row there is, and maybe other rows here, Gwen's here. Isn't she? Gwen? Oh, there's Gwen. So there's some band, is, is geeks, is band geeks, is that okay? They used to say that. I don't know if that's okay or not. Anyway, we were talking about band being really, really more popular than when I was a kid, and, and Cheryl was saying that it's a place where people could find, you know, you, you aren't necessarily the cool or popular kid, but there's a place where you, you found, a, you, you had a place. Um, and I told her, I said, well, in my school, which is very small, it's like I graduated with like 30 people, um, you know, you, you, went, you went to the sports or you did the band or you were like the outcasts in art class because they didn't know what else to do with you and there was no money for anything else. So I was with the art class kids and we were all hanging out. But if you've ever been in a place where you're like, man, I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't have a place, I'm not valuable, I, I don't matter, this is the place where God says, no, I have take, taken you, I have picked you up, I have moved you into my kingdom, into my place. You have been set apart. You have been set apart for a particular purpose. That's made manifest right here. Our vision of sin is too small. Uh, I hope we've been getting at this. We don't think of sin as the thing that crouches by our door. We think of it as uh, these little rights, these little wrongs I do once in a while, they, they aren't a big deal. I hope that you've gotten throughout this sermon that it is a huge deal. It is everything. It is dangerous. It is deadly. It can destroy you. But I also think our view of sanctification is too small. Because some of you are old pros and you know the word holiness and you know the word sanctification. You're like, I check that off. I don't drink or chew or go with girls that do. It's not me. I've got that moral thing down, but that is only one piece, perhaps even the smaller piece. The larger piece is set-apartness. Do you understand that, set-apartness? That you once sort of did your own thing, you belonged to different people, you, you, you had your own world going around, and God has now set you apart. There's a wonderful passage um, from 2 Timothy that really gets at this well. Wanted to bring it up here. 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 5. And so some of y'all might have to, you know, um, probably could say more about this than I could since I was never in the military. But um, it says here, uh, join with me in suffering like a good soldier for Jesus Christ or of Jesus Christ. Belonging to, is the sense, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is kind of the 
commanding officer, the general, the commander-in-chief, whatever you want to say. And, 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 and Timothy is a soldier for him. And Paul is as well. He says in verse 4 there, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. Why? Because the soldier's been given a mission. And, and though there are things that are going around the soldier, things that are, matter a lot, things that are important, things that, that you know, thing, and, and silly things as well. All kinds of things are happening around the soldier. What is the soldier focused on? I heard mission, I heard orders. Right? They're focused on the, the, what they've been told to do, the task that's been given. And this is what Paul is including. He says, um, Rather, he tries to please his commanding officer. Have you all been given a mission? What's your mission? It's a tagline. We put it on everything just to try to help. What is it? Share Jesus. Right? That's kind of the way we put it. Other churches will put it other ways. But there's no right or... Um, share Jesus. Boy. What was your mission again? Share Jesus. The past two months, have we been busy about doing that? We've been worried about civilian affairs. You have no idea how every four years we kill our witness. Kill it. Because we stop talking about Jesus. And we start talking about civilian affairs. It's interesting. First Peter chapter 2 says this. We are a chosen people. You belonged to something. And God said to this swath, you are my chosen people. And then what does he say to these chosen people? He says, you are my holy nation. A royal priesthood. My special possession for mission. That you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Do you know why you've been given that mission? you know why you've been set apart to that good purpose? Because no one else will do it. No one else will complete that mission. No one else is interested in that task. No one else cares about it. But only the people of God. If you go back and you look at all these, all of these things are references to the Old Testament. I encourage you to read the Old Testament. In fact, I dare you. I dare you to get into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I dare you to look up what it looked like to be these people. Look up what a priest did and a priest did not do. And God calls you a priest and ask yourself the question, am I busy doing the things that a priest does or am I busy doing things that non-priests do? What does it look like to be a sanctified person? And here I'll, I'll wrap it up. What does it look like to be sanctified? John says this. He says, the one who is sanctified is born of God. Before you were not born of God. Now you are born of God. And so what does the born of God do? They do not practice sin. We are morally pure. I was having a conversation with a, with a brother um, not too long ago, and he said there is no other organization in America today that every single week says, don't sin. 
It's amazing. The, me- the message and task that we have, it's amazing that as a group of people, 100 plus, have gathered here this morning to remember we're holy. It's incredible. We are to practice justice. We use the word righteousness sometimes to get at that. We practice justice. We love the church. The, John often calls it the brotherhood. We love those who are also born of God. And we talk, we've been talking about love this morning um, in our Sunday school class. Loving people, faithful to them, sacrificing for them, giving them their all. Just what we saw in Jesus, you are to give to one another. And finally, that we conquer the world. The end of all things is at hand. We, we say this, we've been saying it for 2,000 years. It's no less true Today, the end of all things is at hand, whether it's for you personally or whether it's for the whole world. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus has come. The, the, the day of redemption has come. It is time now for us to put aside the things of the past and to press forward to the things of the future, to, to take hold of the promise that we've been given, to separate ourselves from all of the darkness, to be lifted out of this present darkness and to walk according to the newness of life. Is this in you? Is this your heart's desire, your passion, your burning hunger to chase down God for God to be your one thing? Let's do some soul searching this morning. As we come to a conclusion, we stand and sing these songs.